0: Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on sojo.net for more news, resources, and reflections about our current public health crisis. Visit sojo.net slash coronavirus. Today, I'm very happy to be speaking with Melissa Rogers about faith and freedom in the pandemic crisis. Melissa Rogers is an expert, and she truly is. Melissa previously served as special assistant to the president with Barack Obama. Her latest book is called Faith in American Public Life, which helps to frame all these questions have become so controversial on the news. So, Melissa, welcome to the Soul of a Nation. We are so excited to have you today.
1: Thanks, Jim. It's great to be with you.
0: So, in the middle of this pandemic, um, let me ask you just how is your spirit, Melissa? How is your spirit these days?
1: Well, I would say that my spirit is troubled. Um, and, you know, that's for obvious reasons. The toll that this terrible disease has taken on our nation and our world, our neighbors and those far away from us, it's been heartbreaking. And so I'm so glad that you and others are working towards some kind of communal expression of lament for the season that we're experiencing right now, because that's really needed. At the same time, I'm I'm hopeful in part because of some of the things that I see, like Your efforts and those of others to say that this is a time that continues to reveal things to us that need to be seen. And so will we have the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it? I'm hopeful that we will and that we'll be able to better face some of the challenges that have been made plain to us during this really difficult time.
0: Mm -hmm. As I said in the intro, you're a professor and a lawyer uh and you are both indeed and really you've been a teacher to a lot of us on understanding issues like religious liberty and freedom in the context of what churches and others can and should do in public life and you wrote this book called faith in American public life which right is at the core of these issues um l- let me just ask you you know why you wrote this book you've been doing this for years we've been looking at you a lot of us for a long time why you wrote what was the core message here? That you wanted to bring across to us all about faith in American public life? What are the issues here that you see?
1: Yeah, so I wrote the book for essentially three reasons. First, there's so much misunderstanding about the legal roles in this area, including misunderstanding by government officials and some religious leaders and others. So, we'll frequently hear things like the Supreme Court has kicked religion out of American public life, or presidents cannot talk about their personal faith. When they take the oath of office, they have to leave faith behind in some significant ways, or public schools have to be religion free zones. None of those things is true. So, I wanted to, in the first instance, say let's take a cool, calm look at what the court has said and not said about religious freedom and religion in American public life. And let's at least begin to say, okay, here are areas where we've just had misunderstandings and we need to discard them. Here are areas that where we agree about what religious liberty means. And here are some areas where we disagree." And can we have better arguments about the issues where we disagree and clear up the misunderstandings? So that's the first reason that I wrote the book. The second reason is that I'm deeply concerned about rising hostility and attacks on some Americans simply because of their faith or the way that they practice their faith we all know about attacks such as the one that happened on the tree of life synagogue, which is believed to be the deadliest attack on the American Jewish community in United States history. And there've been other houses of worship that have been attacked in the United States and people have been targeted simply because they wear a turban on their head or a yarmulke or a headscarf. And these are terribly troubling issues. These are the most urgent and serious problems that we face of religious liberty in this country today. So what are we going to do about them? One of the things that we really need to do is move more people from the sidelines of this crisis to solidarity with people who are being targeted. I think there are a lot of people out there who think that this is a sorry state of affairs but have yet to raise their voices and get involved. So, can we galvanize more people who have not been publicly active on these issues and call upon them to stand up for their neighbors and to make this an issue where they hold their governmental leaders accountable and hold others accountable? So, that's the second issue. And the third issue that I believe there's some long standing church state rules that have helped our country operate in pretty good fashion in terms of accepting lots of different uh, religious beliefs and practices in our country. But I think some of the rules that some on and off the court want to see be adopted would actually be much worse for our country and undermine that spirit of religious liberty that we've on the whole been able to enjoy over the years. So those are the three basic reasons why I wrote the book.
0: I've often said that I believe in the separation of church and state, but not the segregation of moral values from public life. And you're right at the core of that. How is it that we can have that uh, separation of church and state, that there is no official religion uh, or any faith or no faith at all? Uh, Under President Obama, you were working there, and he was often really affirming (laughs) Christian faith, Muslims, Jewish faith, and people of no faith at all. And yet, you know, our public life has been shaped by the moral values of faith and religion for a long time. How do we separate that from not segregating those values that are needed in our public life?
1: Right. Well, one simple rule here is that the government shouldn't promote or denigrate religion, but it should protect the rights of religious individuals and organizations to express their faith. So we don't want the government to be saying that we are a Christian country um, to the exclusion of other faiths, and we don't want the government to be putting religious tests on public office or requiring our children because they're in public schools to be present for school organized prayers. But we want to be able to allow, for example, as I said earlier, our presidents, if they have uh, religious beliefs and moral values, which, you know, of course, we all hope that uh, and our presidents will have moral values, then we want them to talk about that. We ask them about how they grew up and where they were born and, you know, the kinds of sports activities that they like and the kinds of things that have shaped them as people that will lead our nation. And sometimes religion uh, and hopefully always morals and ethics are part of that. So we shouldn't say that that's something that needs to be kept quiet. There's a line that's laid out by our constitution, and we haven't always gotten it right. It isn't always clear what the right answer is. But in most cases, we can sort this out in a way that allows religion to flourish and to do so precisely because the government is not pushing it on us. It's allowing us to promote our faith.
0: It's interesting how uh, our constitution didn't want to have a state church state religion like much of europe had and yet the influence of religion uh churches uh on our public life in this country is much stronger than in most of of europe today so with that protection there's all really been almost more influence instead of less
1: exactly you know we realize as we look at our country just as you say compared to other countries where there are established religion that we've really not only has the state benefited from the kind of disestablishment of religion that we have in our own country but religion itself has benefited when you think about it you realize that if the government is promoting religion it's going to choose which religion first of all and it's going to change religion In some way. The message, for example, of the gospel is not going to be taken on board wholly by the government. It's going to embrace the parts of the gospel that it likes and minimize the parts that it doesn't like. And then what we're going to be left with is a government sponsored religion that doesn't resemble our faith at all. So that's a good reason, one of them, why we have said that the government shouldn't be promoting religion but it should be protecting our rights to express our faith.
0: I can't imagine any government wanting to uh, establish the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, you can imagine how that might be rejected, or at least the sermon might be pockmarked by the government, and that's no yeah, good.
0: So it's always interesting to me how when when religious people talk about religious liberty or freedom, they're often referring to their own and the threats that they feel instead of the religious freedom or liberty of other faith traditions.
1: Right. And that's a real problem because if it, as my old uh, friend James Dunn used to say, I believe that if it isn't religious liberty for all, then it's not religious liberty at all. So are we going to recognize that religious liberty is indivisible? And that under our constitution, there simply are no second-class faiths. So if anybody's religious freedom is denied, then everybody's is at risk. Pulling on some of those principles of Reverend Dr. King, when he talked about the inescapable network of mutuality and the fact that we're all tied together in a single garment of destiny, that fully applies to this area. So if we are not going to bat for our neighbor's religious liberty, including those who have different faiths and beliefs, then we're really not defending religious liberty at all. We're just defending a kind of religious preference for ourselves. And that is the opposite of religious liberty.
0: So now we have all of this wisdom here that you're giving us thrown into a pandemic. (laughs) And uh, all kinds of reporters are probably calling you all the time and asking you about what this means and the pandemic time, religious liberty, religious faith. You said in an interview with Word and Way, you said, you stated that your position on government bans of religious services during a pandemic is lawful. Quote, you said, the government can and should temporarily ban mass in-person gatherings, including religious gatherings, for a time because of the pandemic. The highly contagious nature of it The lack of testing and tracing just makes that essential. Now, when you say that, you know there are obviously some religious leaders who strongly disagree with your position and are speaking of their fear of the infringement of religious liberty. So what do you say to those who fear that religious freedoms are violated by government uh, shutdowns or closed downs or stay at home or social distancing during a health crisis like this.
1: Now, of course, we're moving from a time of lockdown to a time of reopening and making sure that we balance public health and religious liberty in that phase. And the United States Supreme Court recently provided some guidance on these issues. They considered a challenge by a church to a public health order. And this was actually South Bay United Pentecostal Church challenging an order by Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. And the church sought to stop the enforcement of an order that placed some temporary numerical restrictions on public gatherings to address COVID-19. It limited attendance at places of worship to 25% of building capacity or a max of 100 attendees, whichever is lower. And the church said that that wasn't good enough. They said that this kind of order needed to be stopped because it was a violation of their religious liberty, and indeed it was indisputably clear that it was a violation of their religious liberty according to them. The Supreme Court considered the case on an emergency basis because they were asking for those caps to be lifted before Pentecost Sunday. So the court ruled against the church by a vote of five to four, with Chief Justice Roberts joining the more liberal justices. And if you wouldn't mind, I'm just going to read a little bit of this opinion because I think it'll be really helpful to listeners to hear what Chief Justice Roberts said. He said that the restrictions in the California order are... Consistent with the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment, and he said this, and I'm quoting here although California's guidelines place restrictions on places of worship, those restrictions appear consistent with the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. Similar or more severe restrictions apply to comparable secular gatherings, including lectures, concerts, movie showings, spectator sports, and theatrical performances, where large groups of people gather in close proximity for extended periods of time. And the order exempts or treats more leniently only dissimilar activities, such as operating grocery stores, banks, and laundromats, in which people neither congregate in large groups nor remain in close proximity for extended periods. So, you know, this, I think, gives us some some guidance going forward that will hopefully help policymakers parse these matters. Jim, this is an interesting an opinion for a lot of reasons, one of which is that you know we have Chief Justice Roberts joining the progressive justices on the court in ruling in this way. And so that's a bit surprising for a lot of people. And it creates a sense that maybe this kind of concept that he's talking about has some bipartisan buy-in. So when we think about this, I think some of the takeaways are that courts may begin to look at things like whether this is a gathering of people in person, indoors, for a long period of time in close proximity to one another, whether that's a religious or a secular gathering, and treat those things one way and treat other things like grocery store visits or shopping mall visits where you may be dashing in and out and not Having close proximity to people over a long period of time, treating those things differently. But of course, we're going to have to see how the lower courts um, interpret this, and we'll have to keep an eye on these things as they move forward. I should also mention that Justice Kavanaugh wrote a dissenting opinion that uh, thought that the five justices on the court who ruled the other way got it wrong, obviously. And he thought that churches should be able to meet on the same basis as the grocery stores and the shopping malls. And so that's going to be an issue that we're going to watch moving forward.
0: You know, with all the media making the church opening openings, uh, controversial issues, I've often been curious about what they're asking you, (laughs) these reporters and what you're learning about us as a nation, as a culture by the kind of way they're asking these questions. Uh, you are a scholar, you are an expert, you are a teacher, professor, but a practitioner too. You're helping us often find these lines, these balances. What does constitution say? What does that mean in public schools and churches and so on? And then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and all these questions come to you from these reporters about church openings and the rest. What does what that taught you about your reflection on where we are as a culture, as a nation, in the kind of controversies that get going around all of this stuff.
1: So one thing I would note is that this term essential, as in like an essential worker or, or activity, I think has been somewhat unfortunate. And let me explain what that means. If we're religious, then we're likely to say, of course, practicing our faith is essential. The term as it's used in law and policy is somewhat different And due to this confusion, I think we ought to recognize that the term essential is not essential in policymaking. Indeed, I think a better approach would be to think about trying to put like things alike, as I think the court was trying to do in this recent decision that I discussed about are these indoor gatherings that are happening over a long period of time with people in close proximity to one another, where that could lead to a sense of contagion that we wouldn't have if we're dealing with visits to grocery stores or liquor stores and the like. So I think if we can think about these different um, attributes of gatherings or activities, and then make sure that we're treating all those things that are alike the same, not introducing bias, not ever introducing discrimination against religion or any other activity, but treating like things alike. And then the other thing we have to remember is that this is not just a matter of law, right? It's a matter of theology. It's a matter of prudence and ethics. So just because the law allows something doesn't mean that it's necessarily a good idea. So we want to think about what is, if we're Christian, we want to think about what is the best way to love God and love our neighbors? And what is the theological answer to the question in addition to the legal answer to the question. For example, my own church has decided to continue with online services until at least July, even though we could be meeting in person in a certain way now. We believe that the best way to love God and love our neighbors is to avoid, for now, indoor in-person services while we're continuing to be the church in our communities and to attend to the suffering that's happening all around us, which is so crucial. I think it's also important to note that outdoor services or drive-in services may be ways that we can practice our faith together, not just online, uh, while, of course, protecting the lives of congregants in our surrounding communities. So looking at the law, looking at our theology, looking at our sense of ethics and prudence, all those three things will be necessary as we navigate this next phase of the pandemic.
0: The way this is being made into partisan issues and debates is really alarming to me around that word you just used. For example, uh, it was last Friday when President Trump, I heard him say it when he said it live on a news show. He said, well, the Democratic governors apparently think that um, liquor stores and abortion clinics are essential services, but churches are not. I thought, my goodness, what a way to politicize and polarize this.
1: Yeah, and that was terribly unfortunate because, of course, what we need right now is calm leadership that doesn't exacerbate the differences that already exist and doesn't exploit misunderstandings and resentments. And his message had all the earmarks of exactly what we don't want. Not only that. Um, he announced that day that churches and other houses of worship should open and the CDC guidance for faith communities was being released. So he was saying on Friday that CDC guidance was being released and that houses of worship should open that weekend. Now, anybody who's ever worked or even been to a church very much or a, house, or a synagogue, or a mosque knows that we need to prepare for services. And we especially need to prepare for services that are happening during a pandemic. So to, you know, act as if we can go to a podium in the White House briefing room and posture and take, say, impulsive things and release guidance that day for things that will be happening over the weekend, that if they are handled improperly could well result in deaths is staggering to me. We need leadership that is going to take this seriously and to try to bring us together as much as possible.
0: I was literally on a phone call that Saturday night uh, in a, with a governor's office in the Midwest who were trying to do this, which you just said was impossible. A Friday announcement and a Sunday church opening, and they were trying to provide some guardrails, uh, what percentage of a megachurch population was safe and uh, how many people safe and how far. And they're working on these things with the with the bishops and megachurches in their state with no time to even figure this out and coming to some agreements together. And after that quick opening of churches that were essential, far as I know, the president played golf that day and didn't go to church.
1: yeah. And the um, you know the, the, it was just a recipe for chaos and we deserve better than that um, especially when we're talking about issues that are as sensitive and as uh, as uh, dangerous as this pandemic we we deserve good leadership and it's not just you know it was interesting to see that some of the White House's comments seem to think that, well, we're giving this guidance on Friday and churches can just adapt by Sunday. And that was unrealistic and unfortunate. They also seem to entirely ignore that on Friday, many Muslims have prayer services and on Friday or Saturday, there are services for Shabbat if you're Jewish. So, you know, there's a lot of different faith traditions in the United States of America. And I believe there were also statements made about we need more prayer as if prayer isn't happening during this time because people aren't gathered as they traditionally would be for in-person mass worship services. You know, it's really upsetting to see a lack of awareness or appreciation for the kind of rich tradition that we have in our own country and in other places around the world. And I think, you know, even setting the White House to one side, I think it has called to mind how we need two-way conversation between government officials and religious leaders so that including in emergencies and that's really difficult to do right because government leaders have to act very quickly to protect life do they have Uh, at least a kitchen cabinet of people from various traditions with whom they can consult and attorneys who know about this area of the law that can help steer them right so that they don't unnecessarily create trouble for themselves and unnecessary blowback from the community. I think this is really essential literacy on religion, literacy on religious liberty. These are matters that are spoken to in our constitution. They are important and certainly as important as any other constitutional guarantee. So are governmental leaders and offices equipped before an emergency happens to be able to act thoughtfully, legally, and in a sensitive way on these issues? And I'm not sure that's always the case. So what can we do outside of an emergency time to improve on that? That would be something that I, you know, I love to work on and would welcome anybody who's listening who would like to work on that more. I would like to work with you.
0: (laughs) In fact, in an April article for the Canopy Forum, you wrote this, the Trump administration claims current regulations must be eliminated because they violate the religious liberty of faith-based organizations uh you stay that very kind of just factually this is what's going on. And wouldn't it be wonderful if if uh people like yourself from all of our groups were invited into some conversation with political leaders about how do we get this right? Here's what the Constitution says, here's what a pandemic is, uh here's why why distancing is is physical necessary. And yet we don't want to be socially isolated. Um the gospel text that you and I know well, where two or three are gathered There am I in the midst, said Jesus, which doesn't require church buildings. So rather than talking these things through as honest and difficult questions, they get politicized.
1: Right. Yes. And that's what happens when we don't take these issues seriously. When we take them seriously and in the spirit of the Constitution, we get the kind of collaboration that can not avoid all the problems, but make these matters uh, more, uh, consensus matters. And where there isn't consensus, people can at least feel that they've been heard. But when we don't take them seriously, and in the spirit of the Constitution, you're exactly right. They're treated as if they were sharp objects for the purpose of stabbing each other. And that's no good.
0: Issues of consensus, and I would add common sense as well. So you take these issues very seriously, and what patterns have you seen in the Supreme Court's decisions on religious liberty issues? And how has that is that changing over time? And are there issues that you're now watching closely currently?
1: So the Supreme Court has changed in its composition in recent years in some significant ways. You will recall that Justice Scalia. Uh, had an untimely death, and uh, President Obama tried to. Well, he actually did make a nomination, I should say, of Merrick Garland, and that nomination was not considered by the United States Senate. Then President Trump won the White House and put uh, Justice Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch, on the court. And then most recently, we've had uh, Justice Kennedy retire, and he was kind of known as what is often called a swing justice on the court, and that he sometimes, you know, agreed with um, those who were more appointed, others who were appointed by Republican justices, and sometimes swung over to agree with the justices who were appointed by Democratic Democratic leaders. And so, you know, and, and he had a mixed view of a number of issues. He's been replaced by Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who probably is less likely to be a swing justice. So now we have a situation where we have a different court and it's beginning to uh, chart some new directions on the Establishment Clause, and on the Free Exercise Clause. And there are a huge number of cases bending at the court on church-state issues right now. I think on the Establishment Clause, one of the things I'm concerned about is giving government more latitude to become involved in religious expression, and sponsoring religious expression. So, for example, we had a case last term involving a, a very large cross on public land that was a World War I memorial. And The question was about whether, you know, that was on public property and so whether that was an establishment clause violation with the government promoting faith and and promoting Christianity over other faiths and the court by some of there was a mixed um, decision here. Uh, that brought some Democratic appointed justices together with some Republican appointed justices on whether that cross could stay on that land. And it was agreed that it could stay on that land. But then there was division about, and I won't go into the particulars unless you'd like me to, but there was division about what about future uh, government displays and monuments. And what I'd hoped that the court would say is that moving forward, we're not going to have the government place a huge cross as a memorial to our war dead for two reasons. One is that that ends up seeming obviously not to honor people who died who were not Christian. And so the government should not be erecting a cross for all war dead um, today. Another thing that I'm concerned about is when the government erects a cross and says what that cross means, and often says that that cross has a secular meaning, then that ends up robbing the cross of some of its sacred power. And I don't want the government to do that. So how are we going to do that in the future? So one thing I'm concerned about is the appropriation by government of some of our most sacred symbols and as we talked about, again, earlier in, the, in our discussion, the way in which that changes the meaning of those symbols. I think that it's much better for the government to look for other ways to memorialize Americans of all faiths and none than to set up a cross and to say that that symbolizes the sacrifice um, of the people who serve in our military. And uh, so those are some of the issues that I'm concerned about. I could talk about many more issues on the free exercise side, too, where I think we really need to strike the right balance so that we're not, on the one hand, allowing too broad of interpretation of the free exercise clause in a way that allows big businesses, for example, to hire and fire on the basis of religion, even if they're government contractors. I think there's a difference between allowing a house of worship to say we are a synagogue and we're going to hire a rabbi to lead our congregation, not a Baptist pastor, and a difference between that and a large for-profit Fortune 500 company saying we are not going to hire people who don't believe the Bible the way we believe the Bible. And that includes even when they are federal contractors, meaning that these are taxpayer funded positions. I think there's a big difference between those two things. I'm not confident that the, that a majority on the Supreme Court agrees.
0: Remember Dr. King one time said uh, what churches do uh, as churches or within their own congregations, communities, uh, is one thing. But when we're talking about the commercial space and public square, uh, that's a different thing.
1: Yeah. And I think it's not always black and white. Cause we can think of like a kosher butcher or something where they have to, you know, make certain allowances for people who would do the preparation of meat or other foods so that it meets kosher standards. So it's not that it's totally black and white, but I think that they are factors that we really have to take seriously. Is this a religious nonprofit institution or is this, on the other side of the spectrum, a for-profit, large business that's a federal contractor? There's a yawning bit of difference between those two kinds of entities. Is it significant in a particular case? I think we've got to take that seriously. And what you see, though, on the court are some justices saying that that shouldn't matter, that where religion is asserted, then it should be protected, whether it is the church or the Fortune 500 company that's a federal uh, contractor. Now, on some issues, that might be true, but I don't think it should be true on issues like hiring on the basis of religion. So we have to look case by case, I think.
0: You mentioned the word balance, and I've always found you on this such a balanced thinker and practitioner. How does your own Baptist faith inform your commitment to religious freedom?
1: Well, Baptist have been persecuted minorities in places around the world and today and around the world in some places and at the founding of our own country. So one of the things I take from my Baptist upbringing and my Baptist uh, experience today is to never forget that we were at the end of a sharp end of a stick, um, a persecution in this own, in our own country at one time. So how can we make sure that we stand up for those who are in that position today A second kind of idea that comes out of Baptist life is this idea that there should not be coercion in matters of faith, especially governmental coercion, because what we end up with then is a, you know, a a weakened, warped religion and weak commitments of religious belief and practice by people because they are doing it not because they want to practice their religion, but because they're being coerced in some way. So that's also something that's very strong in the Baptist tradition. And one of the pastors that I love to quote from the founding of our own country, uh, Reverend John Leland, is he said that the fondness of magistrates to foster Christianity has done it more harm than all the persecutions ever did.
0: So a co optation or taking over is more of a threat than even persecution sometimes
1: yes, at least an equal, and, and sometimes it and could be a more of a threat. Well, this
0: is very helpful. And, you know, how can how can we be completely free uh, to practice our faith and that our values can hold governments accountable? And they should, but government can't be able to co-opt us or persecute us for not being the right kind of faith as political power uh, changes and has different opinions about that. That's that's critical going forward, I would think. So, given the pandemic and religious freedom, and we don't—I want to always look for where faith communities stand up for other people's religious liberty. That's what I always look for.
1: And you're you're so good about this, Jim, in pointing out how we need to be both able to partner with government for good, and we need to also be prophetic interrogators of government. To So partnering to ensure in this pandemic that people know about the health guidance they should have, that they have the food that they should have, that we are working with government to encourage testing and sometimes even perform testing. At the same time, whether during the pandemic, we have to also be prophetic interrogators of government. And when we are doing that, what I see right now that I'm encouraged by is that religious organizations are calling for increased NAP benefits, using state resources to pay for testing and treatment. They're saying that's necessary. They're calling for increased use of clemency and home confinement for nonviolent offenders and for tracking and addressing racial disparities and also increasing resources for safe and fair elections. So I think it's that dual role of cooperating and challenging that we need to perform when we're dealing with government.
0: Both of us, with all transparency, we're part of President Obama's first advisory group on faith
1: advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships.
0: Advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships that President Obama uh, set up. Both of us were members of that in his first uh, first year of his administration, and these tensions were were at play. And I remember. Uh, The first time I got invited to the White House with that group that you and I were part of, uh, the first time I was really talking to the president inside the White House, we had talked before that over the years when he was a state senator, but not in the White House. And I remember I went to the White House security. Remember, we had to go to the security and get a check by uh, uh, Secret Services and all that. And we were handing in our cards and IDs. And... um, uh, a lot of my colleagues got in right away and I was held up and I wasn't getting, <laughs> I wasn't getting through and we weren't sure why and then it it, it turned out that uh, because I had been to the White House before and had had prayed on the sidewalk in front of the fence on issues of human rights and and even had nonviolent civil disobedience there that I was on the security lists and wasn’t allowed into the uh, the meeting. And it made me reflect on how you're, as faith leaders, sometimes we're called to be outside uh, on the fence and, and praying uh, for justice and peace and even doing nonviolent civil disobedience. And sometimes we're called to, to go inside and partner and how can we work together and how can we serve the common good? And sometimes it's a lot easier and clearer when you're on the outside. And sometimes harder when you're on the inside trying to advocate, as you were just saying, for increased food assistance or protecting the vulnerable or not balancing the budget on the backs of our poorest people. So those are tensions and there's no right place to be outside, inside. Movements always have to have this uh, dance almost outside, inside. And Dr. King did both. He protested on the outside and he met on the inside. And that's the challenge. How do we be faithful? Uh, whether we're on the White House sidewalk or in the Oval Office, How do we be faithful and not religion uh, be co-opted by political power but hold power accountable, you know? That's the hard thing.
1: That's exactly right. And I think so much about double standards that we don't ever want to have a double standard. When when people that we voted for get in office, then we need to hold them accountable too. And we need to be sure that we're not using double standards and excusing them for things that would that we would say would be unforgivable for people for whom we did not vote. So, you know, I think in this chapter, that's a lesson that's been Right at the forefront of my mind, and I, I would imagine many others. And so, how do we do that so that we, in the end, don't lose the credibility of our witness? If we lose the credibility of witness, then what are we? What do we have? We don't have anything anymore. So
0: and not be chaplains, left-wing or right-wing chaplains.
1: Yeah. Forward. And it's, it's hard. You know, it's harder than I think we often would admit to walk that line. Mm-hmm. And so how do we establish relationships, I think, that with people who are different from us somewhat politically and may be helpful to us in holding us accountable? I think that's one way to look at the problem and begin to address it.
0: Well, bless you for your balance in all these questions. And if you want to know the answers to how you navigate this territory of religious freedom and liberty, read Faith in American Public Life by Melissa Rogers, who I think has got a clearer sense of this than anybody else I know. So thank you, Melissa, for joining us in this conversation.
1: Thank you so much, John.
0: To hear more from Melissa Rogers, follow her on Twitter at MelissaRogers. Also, check out her most recent book. It's called, again, Faith in American Public Life at melissarogersbook.com. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And if you'd like, follow me on Twitter at Jim Wongs. Blessings uh, to all of you for the soul of the nation.